Bible study. Father, we thank You for what it is that You're doing here. God, we know that You have all power, that the authority is Yours, that You are seated and that You are reigning and ruling. The Word says You hold the created order together by the power of Your spoken Word. The same breath that breathed life as it spoke into the universe is the same power and authority that keeps it all together. And Father, we submit to You as a part of that created order, giving You the honor that You are due, giving You the glory that You are due, sitting in reverence of the fact that there is no God greater than the God Yahweh. The God of gods. The God who wages war with other gods, putting them in subjection. You have put all enemies under your feet. And we long for the day when we will see the enemy death no longer operating. But it has been conquered. And it has been conquered by the Messiah, Jesus. Our faith, our hope, our confidence is in Jesus. And this morning we ask that the Spirit that Jesus sent into the world to convict it of sin would be the same Spirit that renews and transforms and reforms the way that we think as we approach the text of Scripture. That we wouldn't just jettison everything we've learned, but we would pause our preconceived notions to actually strive to hear from You today. So Father, I pray that You would be the one who leads this Bible study as You lead me, lead us. We love You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a sermon series on 1 Peter. We're just going to get into it today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18-20. through 20. Servants, I already don't like this. I just think the ESV does a bad job of translating this word. It should say slaves. But they want to like make it a little bit more easier on the modern reader. And so we're going to point that out. This should be translated slaves. I love the ESV translation. But that doesn't mean they get it all right. And when we acknowledge that they could have done a better job, we're going to talk about the fact that they should have done a better job. And they should have translated this word, slaves. Now everybody's on their heels. I didn't show up on Mother's Day to talk about slaves or slavery. Well, you may not have, but we did. (laughs) Because if you're with us, then you know that This is how we're going through the letter, verse by verse. And this is the next section. And just like yesterday, as much as I would love to just kind of hop over this section and not have to preach it, it's there. And we have to deal with it. So we're going to deal with it. And the goal is to equip everyone in the room not to be a specialist. Once again, you don't do one sermon and become a specialist. But the goal is to begin the conversation on how we should handle the topic of 
slaves or slavery in conjunction with submission. What's up, Dasha? Amen. Amen. There we go. See, this is what I'm talking about. We show up here to dig in. And so we can look to the text and we can say, okay, God is going to encourage me this morning. Thank you, Dasha. With the Word. He's going to use the Word to wash me the same way that He calls me to wash those that I love. And that's a beautiful analogy. Take away the impurities, God. So let's read from 1 Peter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is like... I come to parts in the text like this and there's no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind that these three verses pose a massive challenge to both the hearts and the minds of modern students. They do. And we have to be able to just admit that passages in the text can be difficult to handle. When someone says, look, the Bible is simple. Don't get into an argument with them, but that's not what the Bible says about the Bible. The author of Hebrews says, grow up beyond the elementary doctrines. If you're instructed to grow up beyond the elementary doctrines, guess what? There are difficult doctrines to deal with. If Peter says about Paul in 2 Peter, some of the things he writes are difficult, and there are those that twist them, why would we say that this is simple? When the authors themselves don't say it's simple. Can a child understand the Gospel? 100%. Is Genesis chapter 6 simple? Absolutely not. These three verses in this New Testament letter, 18, 19, and 20, pose a massive challenge to the hearts and minds of the modern student. If you're a disciple, then you're a student. If you're a disciple, then you're an apprentice. You're in the process of learning. I'm a lay preacher. I'm in the process of learning. We are all lay Christians. We're in the process of learning. Can I ask you guys to close your eyes for a second? Just listen to the words. Slaves. Slaves, submit to your masters. Not only to the good, but also to the unjust. Go ahead and open your eyes. I don't know about you, but my Western, first world, modern lens doesn't even like to hear that out loud. It doesn't. Slaves, submit to your masters. 
not only to the good, but also to the unjust. New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards notes that Peter's instructions to submit to acts of injustice. Well, that's just offensive to our American sense of right and wrong. And if you're going to tell yourself, it doesn't offend me, you're lying to yourself. We all grew up in a country, we all grew up in a time where freedom is sought after. All of us are free people. None of us, to my knowledge, have actually been physically enslaved. So there's a degree of separation here that needs to be acknowledged. For the modern American, this is just offensive to our sense of right and wrong. It is. And we have to deal with it. What happens to us intrinsically? Like, what goes on in our hearts when we hear the term slave? I bet it's different, just a little bit different for every person in here. What happens when we open the text and we read the term servant? Are we tempted to just fast forward through the ages? I made that mistake last week in a simple statement that I made. Are we tempted to leave behind the context of Peter's letter? To abandon the context of his audience in an attempt to arrive at a time that's more familiar to us. Because when we open the Bible, I want to know what God has to say to me. What do you got for me today, God? Because it's all about me, right God? It's crazy that we have this culture in the church that we have to deal with, that we have to root out. It's not about me. Peter, the author, has an intention. It's about the author, and it's what the Spirit inspired through the author. The audience had an understanding. It's about what the audience understood that Peter was after. It's not about us. It's not about our modern cultural context. It's about their historical cultural context. If we don't know that, we're going to be hopeless to properly apply it in our own lives. This is how you get the prosperity gospel. This is how you get an abuse of the gifts. This is how you get leaders who are sexual predators and nobody says anything. Because there are things in the church that need to be rooted out. And this is one of them. Coming to the context of the text and being like, what does it have to say to me today? What does it have to say about me today? God, because I'm wondering, what's up with me? And God's like, oh, this story is greater than you, Matthew. This story is much greater than you, Matthew. Are we tempted to leave behind the context? And the question is, so that we can arrive at something that's just familiar to us. Why is that the question? Because that's easy. It's what's easy. I don't want to deal with what's unknown. I just want to deal with what's, mo what's, with what's most familiar to me. We are a text-driven people. We must learn to read the text in context. This is a lifelong discipline that we are in pursuit of. This is not something that someone has mastered in here. We are all in the process of developing. 
Verse 18, when we look at it, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. We're looking at Peter give birth to a second part in his household code. If you were here last week, we were introduced to the household code. Something that is not only contextual to the text of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Dates all the way back to Aristotle. This is the second part. Peter began his household code by exhorting believers to submit to the government. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. If you weren't here last week, when Brent uploads the sermon on YouTube or puts it on Podbean and it hits Spotify, go listen to it. But this is the second part, and we have to deal with what Peter is saying in part two of his household code. He shifts his attention. It's no longer on submission to the government. It's on the responsibility of slaves. Now when we're going to talk about the responsibility of slaves in the first century, we need to pump our brakes. The historical work of William Barclay is very helpful when it comes to passages like this. And there are other scholars who have dedicated their lives to the historiography of the text, not just the text itself, so that they can paint a solid background so that we can understand. And if we're not reading the material that they write, and we're just creating a backdrop, chances are the backdrop we create is going to be skewed. Now he writes that this section of the household code is the section that would have been most relevant to Peter's audience. Think about that. Think about that statement. This section of Peter's letter would have been the most relevant to his audience. Do we know why? The slave population formed by far the greatest part of the early church. That's a reality. The slave population in Rome formed the greatest majority in the early church. If we are coming to the text and we don't frame the text with the reality that the early church was dominated by the people group who functioned as slaves, we're coming to the text one degree off. Dr. Keener observes this reality that William Barclay presents. He says that if we look at the letter, we can see that Peter speaks only to the slave. He never directly addresses the master, which suggests the dominant composition of his audience, many slaves, few slaveholders. Peter's looking at the situation and the occasion of the letter. What am I writing for? What is the purpose behind Peter's letter? Well, part of that is knowing what his audience is in need of. They're in need of encouragement because they're suffering. And he's writing to a group of people that are suffering. This group of people is composed. Many slaves, few masters. Rome. Rome was an empire that had conquered the known world. Now, this is up for debate, but some historians estimate that there were as many as 60 million 60 million slaves throughout the entire Roman Empire during the time that Peter was writing this letter. 
60 million slaves. That makes me want to vomit in my mouth. That breaks my heart. The fact that that many people had been enslaved. Does that bother us? Or do we just read past something like that and not even give it a second thought? It begs the question, how could Rome acquire such a vast number of slaves? Even if it's not 60 million and it's 30 million, it's 30 million too many. We need to understand that back in the day when nations would go to war, it was commonplace to enslave the conquered. Commonplace to enslave the conquered. If it weren't for time, we would look at Genesis chapter 14 and 15. Lot and Abraham go their separate ways. And it's a very short period of time before Sodom is conquered by four kings. Lot, his wife, his children, the whole city, and all their possessions are taken out of Sodom and forced into slavery. This is not only being conquered in war, this is being kidnapped and enslaved now. That would be a great place to look to get some details on the reality that nations who conquered nations enslaved the conquered. We could look at the different Assyrian kings responsible for the deportation of northern Israel. Now, you don't even need the text to confirm this. History confirms this. A 40-year war and over 40 years national deportation out of the northern king of Israel, uh, out of the northern kingdom of Israel into Assyria. Men, women, and children, old and young, do you know what is how Assyria used to travel their slaves that they conquered? They'd fish hook them through the nose. They'd take a small string, just long enough, fish hook the next person through the nose. We have this in iconography. This is how they used to conquer their enemies. They would march them out of their home after conquering them into a land that they did not know. What happens when one falls out? Can't make it. Do we think about this stuff when we think about people who are being enslaved? Stuff like this is still happening today. We're just using modern weapons. Modern warfare. <laughs> so we could talk about the deportation of Israel. We could take Nebuchadnezzar and his treatment of the southern kingdom and its royal family is a case study. We did that last week. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Right? Renamed. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The very identity that was grounded in their Hebrew name was taken from them. They were stripped down to nothing. After they watched their families be destroyed. But the point is this. Look, this is the point that I'm making. The Roman Empire was not doing anything original. They weren't. Everything they were doing had been done before them. When they stepped onto the stage as the dominating world power, they just embraced cultural customs that worked for the, the, the world powers that predated them. 
Conquer, enslave. Conquer, enslave. Conquer, enslave. This has to frame our way of thinking when we read stuff like this in Peter. In the Greco-Roman world, slavery was not based on race. People became slaves due to warfare, like we just talked about. Now, there were some who were kidnapped and sold into slavery. This wicked, evil, vile practice goes all the way back to the ancient Near East. We read from Genesis last week, and we saw the life of Joseph thrown against his will into a well, taken by his brothers. That would qualify today as kidnapping, being held against your will. Sold, then resold in a land that wasn't his. So it's not just war. There's kidnapping. There's the selling of human beings still happening today. Now, there were those who were born into slavery. In the first century, if I understand Roman law properly, the research that I did, slaves, not freed persons, but slaves, were not permitted to legally marry one another. Now, they could cohabitate, so let's just take a step back and say, well, what happens when adults cohabitate long enough? Well, if you don't know, I'll tell you, babies are born. <laughs> People have sex. Babies are born. But here's the, here's the harsh reality. The baby that was born to a slave mother and a slave father, it wouldn't be their baby. That baby would be the property of the slaveholder. So the biological mother and the biological father would give birth to a child who would live their life indefinitely enslaved unless they were manumated. Don't get it twisted. Manumation was not common practice. Just because it existed doesn't mean that it was there for anybody to just grab hold of. Let's not forget about those who due to economic hardship would choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Here's a new piece of information for us. Slavery was better than poverty in the first century. Slavery offered some form of protection and provision. It was better than being impoverished. Put that in the knapsack when you think about first century slaves. This was the cultural climate, everybody. This was the normative practice under the rule and reign of Rome. We're not saying that it was right. We're just saying that this was the reality of the situation, and we can't change the past. We can work in the present to make the future better. It's for these reasons and many others that Rome was able to acquire such a vast number of slaves. Whatever the number was. Now as modern students of the text, we need to abandon the idea that during the first century, slaves were somehow only co-signed to basic duties within the framework of the structure of the society that they lived in. It's true. 
It's true, there was jobs that nobody wanted. Nobody wanted to be a gladiator. (laughs) And nobody wanted to work in the mines. Think about how dangerous work in the mines is today. Remove all of the technology and put yourself in the first century and ask yourself if you would have wanted to work in a mine then. Those two jobs were death sentences. But there were also functions and roles in society that slaves fulfilled that were not just basic duties and tasks. Slaves were educators. They were teachers and tutors. When the aristocrats were sending the next generation of world leaders to be educated, they were sending them to be educated by the slave. What does this teach us? That slavery in the first century encouraged the slave to be educated. They didn't take the education away. They encouraged it. Slaves were physicians and doctors. When the aristocrats were sick and their life was on the line, they went to the doctor. The doctor was most likely a slave. Society, scribes, secretaries, these are important roles in society. Scribes and secretaries were slaves. Musicians, actors, field managers, household managers were all likely slaves. If Joseph was a slave in the ancient Near East and he was a household manager, chances are not much had changed. By the time the first century rolled around, slaves could be household managers then too. We call them nannies now instead of calling them slaves. You get my pick? You get my point? We're not minimizing the fact that the the nannies in today's day and age have rights that the slaves then never had, but we're saying the jobs, the most important jobs, the people we entrust our children to, those were the kinds of jobs that were held by slaves. This was the world. This was the world that gave birth to the original recipients of Peter's letter. Can you guys read this out loud for me, please? I already told you I don't like this English translation. I don't like this one either. This should just say submit. The literal translation is slave submit. Is that what it says? NIV does a better job than the ESV in this capacity. That's because the context of who we fear from the preceding passage is only God, as we talked about in our study last week. So if the context has been set prior to what he's writing now, that is the standard. So he can say, in certain English translations, it'll just say, fear your master. But the context of the fear is God so that you can work well for your master. That's a missional thing, by the way. They're watching our lives. So you can see how there are textual variants even in the English. Imagine the textual variants amidst the Greek. Now, Peter's literally saying, I'm going to need you to engage, not disengage. 
Remember, the Christian is not allowed to disengage from society. We're not. We're called to engage the society. We're called to bring the light into the darkness, knowing that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it. You cannot disengage and put the basket on top of your light. You need to take the basket off. You need to engage. So that's what Peter's saying. Engage. Don't disengage. He's saying, I'm going to need you, my loved ones, to responsibly occupy your place in society without compromising your position in Christ. There's our definition of submission from last week. How does AC squared define submission? Well, in the immediate context of 1 Peter, we define submission this way. Responsibly occupy one's place in society without compromising one's position in Christ. That's how we define submission. It's a form of engaging, not disengaging. It's not blind obedience, and it's not blind allegiance. Husbands, listen to me. Some of you run your houses as if you were a slaveholder. Some of you are brutal taskmasters. Your wife and your children should not hear you ask them to submit as if submission is blind obedience and blind allegiance. When you ask your wives and your children to submit, you should be asking them to responsibly function in the role that God gave them within the family. Do not be a harsh taskmaster in your home. That's a word for someone in here. Occupy your place in society without compromising your position in Christ. I can't say it enough. Now I want to point out that Peter chooses to do something interesting in the Greek here. This word servants, most often in the New Testament, that's doulos. In the, in, in the plural, I think it's doulai. But Peter doesn't use either of those words here. He uses a word that's pronounced oiketes. Now why do we have to highlight this? Why do we have to spotlight this? Well, BDAG defines oiketes as a member of the household or a member of the home first. Only after identifying the member as a household or home recipient does it differentiate between home slave or field slave. Field slave or domestic slave. So in the immediate context, Peter seems to be consistent. He's matching the greater context. He's addressing the household slave within the household code. Did we talk about nuance last week? If Peter's addressing a specific group of people, is it safe to say that generally the instructions may apply to all? Yes, but Peter's aware that there's nuance between the household and the field worker. And right now, he's talking to the household slave in the household code. Why is this important? Peter's a realist. He refuses to fall prey to the irrational idea that all slaves have it good just because some did. You know what Americans do? I know because I'm one of them. We walk around as if slavery is not a thing anymore because it's illegal in America. But there's an entire world that transcends our borders that's dominated by slavery. But we stick our head in the sand and we act like slavery is not an issue anymore. 
when it most definitely is. It would be irrational to think that all slaves had it good just because some did. He would be aware. Peter would be aware. Remember, this is his time. This is his context. It's his letter and it's his loved ones. He would be well aware that many slaveholders made a practice of abusing their slaves. That's why he can write not only to the good, but also to the unjust. Listen to the words of Aristotle. Raise your hand. You heard of Aristotle? Anybody done any philosophy? Listen to the words of Aristotle, who, by the way, has a huge, a tremendous amount of influence on the way that we think as Westerners. This is what he writes. There can be no friendship, no justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Homeboy would get canceled today. No friendship. No justice. Again, William Barclay is very helpful when he writes, the dominant fact in the life of the slave was that even if he was well treated, he remained a tool. No human rights and no hope for justice under the authority of an unjust master. Can you imagine having to exist in this? Can you imagine your life being lived out in an environment like this? Everyone should be shaking their heads no right now because we can't. I've read about it. I've studied it. You haven't lived it. Well, my best friend or my... No! (laughs) I can envision multiple congregations throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia all weeping. Why would they be weeping? Because their greatest population in the church is composed of slaves. And Peter writes this. And this is what's being read aloud in their church service. Slaves, submit to your masters, even when they're unjust. I could imagine the congregations who actually know what this is like just weeping. Why, Peter? Why would you write this? Why? This is very difficult for me. Why would you say such a thing? And immediately upon asking the question, they would receive their answer. Can you guys read this out loud for me? We have a New Testament inclusio here. Which means this is most likely poetic or proverbial. Verse 19 and 20 function as the explanatory power behind Peter's 
command to submit in verse 18. If the slave is wondering why they should submit, the answer is found in verse 19 and 20. He says that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God when one chooses to suffer injustice for the sake of doing good. I'm just, I was going to ask if I could be honest, but I'm just going to be honest. This is a tough one. I mean, like, this one's really hard for me. I struggle with the thought of injustice, having caused many injustices. More often than not, when I'm confronted with the question, why does it have to be like this, Matt? I don't have the answer. I'm left speechless. It feels like my mind, and it might feel like our minds, is going to need some recalibration if we're even going to consider this to be an option. Submission suffering injustice and doing good in the midst of it <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> maybe once or twice in my life but what if my life was dominated by an environment like that of a slaves it's at times like this that i find the words of the master to be so convicting not encouraging, not inspiring, not comforting, but convicting. I need somebody to look up Luke chapter 6 and read verse 32 through 35. Who wants to do it? First person to raise their hand gets to do it. There it is, Ethan. Luke chapter 6, verse 32 through 35. Go ahead and face the audience when you read so that they can hear you, please. 32 through, yeah, through 35. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is it? What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. For he, speaking of the Most High, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil person. Why, God? Why are you so patient? Why are you so kind? Why are you so loving? Why are you so merciful? Why are you so steadfast when dealing with the unjust and the evil person? And then I realized... That's me. That's me. I'm the evil person. Love your enemies. I can't do that. Ah. 
But Christ left me an example. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Whose righteousness am I clothed in? Whose blood has washed me and made me clean? Who has given to me and expects nothing in return but faith and loyalty? What seems impossible has been exemplified in the life of Christ. A memory which Peter himself is most certainly drawing on. He would have been here for this. He's definitely drawing on this memory as he, is, as he is encouraging his loved ones, the slaves in the congregation, to responsibly occupy their place in society without compromising their position in Christ. Why should they have to do this? Why should they have to do this? That would be my question. If I were in that audience and I were living in that environment and someone told me I had to do that, I would say, why? Why should I do that? I think this is what Peter would answer. What was the reward that was given to Jesus after he willfully submitted to the acts of injustice in his own life? It was resurrection and exaltation. It was resurrection and exaltation. You need a reason to submit? There it is. When Peter says this is a gracious thing, he's making a direct connection to the divine approval of the Father. Philippians chapter 2 is coming to mind right now. The kenosis. The emptying and the exaltation of Jesus. Slaves who endure injustices. Slaves who willingly suffer for the sake of their relationship with God. In the end, they will be rewarded by God. This is the Gospel. Resurrection and exaltation for those who suffer for doing good and endure to the end. That's when the slave can go, oh, 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 you're asking me to be like Christ. <laughs> All you're doing is asking me to be like the Messiah. Suffering injustice is senseless via normal human evaluation. However, it is the honorable thing, according to Peter, to do in God's perspective. There is no credit, he says, for those who suffer when they choose to sin. But if when we do good and suffer for it, we endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The slave who by faith the slave who willingly suffers can expect the same honor which the Father bestowed on the Son. Resurrection and exaltation. And that's enough. Whatever may come in this life, that's enough. It's more than we deserve. 
The life of the faithful slave exemplifies Christian behavior in the midst of life's most difficult situations. The life of the faithful slave exemplifies Christian behavior in the midst of life's most difficult situations. We stand to learn much from the slave in our first world experience. Dennis Edwards writes that it is the slave who lives their lives in horrible, undesirable conditions, and yet it is the slave who has the particular honor of serving as a living example of what Jesus is like as they model the values that are most important to God. Why does the church want to marginalize a powerful passage in the text like this? Because it's difficult? Why does the church want to ease the authority out and off of the text by making this out to be an employer-employee relationship? When it's not that. Not in its context. Why does the church look at the least of these to come in the door and say, you sit in the back! We know that this was the case because James writes in his letter, don't show partiality. Right, Brent? Why do we look at the least of these and think, Thank God I'm not like them. I do it. Driving down the road. Looking at the guy standing on the corner with the sign. He could work if he wants to. I have no idea what his story is. Chances are, he didn't live in these conditions. Which means it was even more difficult for them then than it is for us now. This is why we have to read the text in its context. Matt, slavery has been illegal for years. Abolition. I need it to make sense to me. No, you don't want it to make sense to you. You do this. You don't know what you're asking for. I literally heard a guy tell me I was evangelizing this dude. And he was like, it makes sense. What do I have to do? And he was like, it was in that moment that I found myself trying to talk him out of it. Because he didn't understand what he was getting himself into when he was going to become a slave to God. If you're a spirit-filled believer, you're a slave to God. Why do we do this? I, the, the, the slave, the slave in the, in, in the text. I'm just so glad that slavery is not a thing anymore. Africa, India, North Korea, China. These are real places. Mexico has the greatest hub for human sex trafficking 
A few hundred miles south of our border, we know it. You can Google it and read all about it. And we do nothing. Are we praying? You think 60 million is a big number? Think about the world population today and how many potential people are enslaved right now. Some way, shape, or form. It's disgusting. And we come to church and we think, I hope the message today is for me. It's the stupidest thing we could think. As if we're owed something from God or from the preacher in the pulpit. Like he should be the one responsible to feed you enough food to carry you till next Sunday. It's ridiculous. And if that's your mind frame, it's been my mind frame in the past and it'll probably be my mind frame sometime in the future. We need to be rebuked. We need to be corrected. A change in behavior needs to take place. We need to learn to deal with these things. These are hard things. None of this, the stuff that I'm describing, was, was or should be qualified as right. However, we have to talk about it. We have to strive to understand it when we know that we won't ever fully comprehend it. And then we have to be sympathetic and empathetic to those who are in it. What happens when a refugee, because this is happening now, what happens when a refugee is able to escape their homeland and come to America, hoping to be a citizen, and they cross your path, and they were actually enslaved in their motherland, and you're like, I'm really glad the preacher just avoided slavery and made it an employee-employer relationship for me because now I have no idea how to speak the Gospel into this person's life. Something like a few hundred Afghani refugees came here. Has anyone even met one? I can't raise my hand. I'm not looking down on you. Just calling the spade a spade. They're in our backyard. Are we avoiding them like the plague? Or are we attempting to meet them where they're at, knowing that God can and will do the same thing for them He's done for us spiritually? He's already freed them physically from the rule and the reign of the Taliban, and now they're here, and they're going to be hungry for the truth. They've been set free physically, most likely because we wouldn't go. God brought them here. And now we won't even talk to them when they're in our backyard. Knowing what it means, how to minister to the enslaved individual is vital today. Just as much as it was vital when Peter was writing his letter then. And I'm speaking to myself because I didn't know any of this before I studied this week. And I've talked on, servant, on, on, on servitude and servanthood in the past. 
Which means the studying that I did in the past, as good as I thought it was, wasn't enough. Did I say that learning to read the text in its context was a lifelong discipline? If I'm in it, then we're in it. And we need to look back at what was done and say, I can do better this time. And hope that if God gives us another opportunity, we can do better the next time. Don't just recycle what you've heard. And don't just be satisfied with what I've told you today. This should make your mouth water. I want more. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, give me a meal. I don't just want to swallow. I've got the whole week to go home and read. What am I going to do? I can't stress it enough, the text in its context. I was talking to James last week. He's like, I'm interested to hear what you're going to bring. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to say. No idea. And that's okay. I've got a week to prepare. I was having dinner with the Chronisters. It's like, I don't, I don't know all this stuff. I have to preach with a manuscript. I'm not the Bible answer man. And I shouldn't be expected to be. Because you all have to answer for yourselves. God is using portions of Peter's letter to wake me up. I hope he's using portions of Peter's letter to wake you all up. I think we're just going to cut it there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We're going to send. We're, we're, we're ending five minutes early today. It's a world record. We're going to cut our last song. We're going to do our doxology, grab a donut, and leave. No, no, no. Just kidding. Just kidding. Hang out. Do what you got to do. But yes, make sure that you spend time honoring the mothers today. Let's give our moms a round of applause. Stand with me, face one another, and let's read the doxology. Uh, because we're foregoing this, if you need prayer, let me just simply give you this word of, guy, of, of wisdom. If you need prayer, just ask the person next to you to pray for you. Like the slide, the last slide said, there's no walk of shame at AC Squared. Meet someone in the back room. Well, today there's no back room, but there's a room full of spirit-filled believers right here. And if you need prayer, just ask the person to your right or your left, hey, pray for me. My life sucks right now. And we will. In fact, you might end up praying for the one that you asked prayer for. Who knows? Go ahead, let's read this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.